We all want to do work that we love. And as leaders, entrepreneurs, and employees, wouldn't it be great to create workplaces where work feels like play? Where people are tuned in to the changes going on in the world around them. Where they're constantly learning, spotting new opportunities, and taking action to go after them. I'm Amanda Satilli, and this is the Fearless Growth Podcast, where my guests and I will explore the mindsets and choices that lead you and your organization to outstanding performance. My guest today is Neil Hoyne. He's the chief measurement strategist at Google. He's led more than 2,500 engagements with the world's biggest advertisers and has generated billions of dollars in incremental revenue for these customers. His new book is called Converted, The Data-Driven Way to Win Customers' Hearts. And I'm just really excited to welcome you, Neil. Amanda, thank you so much for having me. I want to ask you a few questions about Google, its culture, how you work. And I've, you know, learned, I've worked with Google. I've looked at, you know, I've I've read a lot about Google and I've observed it as a customer for years. I love Google products. But what, which of Google's practices do you think are most important in enabling Google to just keep on innovating year after year? That's it, it's a good question, and I'm I'm sure in many years it'll be the subject to many case studies. Uh, and I've I've had the privilege of watching the company. I think it was at about nineteen thousand employees when I started, to now more than two hundred thousand. And you really look at you're like, well, what are the practices that have permeated externally? Uh, people see the perks, right? They see the the volleyball courts and the free food, and they say, well, that's what leads to Google's culture. When fundamentally, I noticed a few things. Uh, one is the ability for the company and for its employees to work across functions with minimal friction. Uh, there's really nothing standing in the way of saying, this is a particular team, this is a particular engineer or product manager or an analyst that I'd like to talk to. There's no bureaucracy that says you can't reach out and talk to them and work with them, uh, that you have to go through specific processes and you have to go through individual teams or get manager approval. It just leads to that sense of collaboration where people can explore their questions more equally. And the culture is conditioned in the way that if you receive these types of requests, uh, you're open to entertaining them because you can see all the wonderful serendipitous things that can come out of these collaborations. So every day, it's not uncommon that I'll hear from five or six people from teams I've never worked with in different parts around the world, just because they're curious about something, curious about my work, trying to figure out who in the company is working on a problem. And when you have this happening at scale, it's remarkable because people feel embodied to really just say, what can I do? Who can I work with? And that goes up almost to the highest level of the organization where there's VPs, SVPs, even C-levels that you can send an email to and you're likely going to get some type of reply. Uh, I've I've heard stories about people, I'm not going to mention names because otherwise I worry they're going to get bombarded by emails. But there are even some executives where if I were to email them today, even though we've never worked together uh, and they have arguably better things and bigger things to work on than me, it's still likely that they're going to give me a thoughtful reply to my question, connect me with the resources that are necessary uh, and allow me to continue doing my work. So that's the first thing is I'd say that the lack of friction across individual teams to work and to collaborate has just been wonderful. Uh, The second I'd say is just the way that Google has almost incentivized that type of behavior. And so accelerating it, they have internal ways of recognizing employees in Google uh, language, they call them peer bonuses, where effectively for somebody that goes above and beyond their function, uh, I have the ability to give them a small cash bonus. So it's just under $200. 
But what's interesting about it is that I can give this out. The only approval that's necessary is the recipient's manager, and there's really no reason not to uh, approve it. It doesn't come out of anyone's budget. So there's not a concern to say, I'm depleting my budget of, of bonus money I want to give out. And it not only for the recipient, not only do they get that small monetary award, but it also helps when it goes in their performance review. And so now you have something just beyond the job that, that helps people get to you know, say, hey, this is great to collaborate because I get a little bit of recognition for my work doing so. So if their manager keeps on approving these, these peer bonuses and the person isn't getting their core job done, I mean, that's a way to kind of put a governor on the system in a way, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, certainly a manager can look at it and be like, hey, so you, you, you went above and beyond and working with this team but you didn't get your core job done. And certainly there, there could be a coaching element. In my experience in managing teams, it doesn't happen often enough to where you would think it's a distraction. You know, the, I, I've seen on average, somebody might receive one or two of these a quarter. Uh, if somebody was receiving six or 10 a week, I'd be like, mm-hmm. wow, you're, you're working across a lot of teams. And, and that, nece- that wouldn't necessarily be a problem as much as it would be an opportunity to say, it seems like you're doing a lot of great work for people outside your core role. What's the commonality on that? And how do we build something that scales around it? Um, but absent that, how else do you get that visibility? You know, hey, you're working with teams outside your core function. It's like, do we talk about this every week? This is kind of a way to make you kind of manage that process a bit. Right. That's really, really interesting. You've got hundreds of different things happening. You've got over 100,000 employees. How does it all, I mean, how do people... St- how do managers set priorities? How does it get rolled up? Because this is a problem that I'm sure you've seen your your customers um, struggle with is too much stuff on the plate, too much stuff going on, too many people asking me for help. How does Google manage that? Now, the, the system that we use, we borrowed from, from Intel uh, called OKRs. If you haven't come across it, objectives and key results, the basic process behind it is that every quarter, uh, teams and individuals set specific goals that they want to accomplish. And those goals are not only the objective part of it, the O, uh, but also how they're going to measure that success. So it's not enough to say, I'm going to launch this product. You have to say, I'm going to launch this product. How many users are we going to reach? Uh, or how much money are we going to generate? Or what's going to happen with, say, our net promoter score, our customer satisfaction scores? And those are then rolled up. Uh, to the organizational level and to a larger team level. And and that's kind of how you manage the processes. But a few things stand out. Uh, One is when we score these particular items at the end of a quarter, the goal isn't to have 100%. If you have 100%, then the interpretation is that the manager was kind of of soft. They achieved everything they wanted. Conversely, if somebody got a zero, it'd be like, well, you set goals that were a little bit too hard. So the target has always been somewhere around 70% which means that you're going to have some things that you set for that we expect you not to accomplish. And what that's really doing on the first part is it's systematizing risk. It's saying we we expect you to fail on some projects and that's okay. Almost one third of your projects will not work out the way you plan. And that way, when you're building it, if you need a hundred percent of your things to work out, then then you're going to set soft achievable goals. If you set something where you say, look, you expect a third of your projects to fail then then that becomes a little bit easier. So that's the first step is really just how we're setting those objectives. The second one, which I find to be particularly important, is that they're coming from the individual Googlers, the individual contributors first, not the manager. 
So I'm not going to my teams and saying, this is what you're going to do. These are going to be your OKRs. I'm going to them and saying, I want you to set them for me. Tell me what you're interested in pursuing, where you think the greatest opportunities are, where you think we're going to have to take risks. And then my role as a manager is to make sure they align with what I see happening at the larger organization level. But that allows you to get the input from the frontline people as to what they think is important instead of pushing down your priorities on them. And so if they're seeing friction in a particular area, something you may not observe, and they're willing to tackle it and they know how to measure it and they know what they can achieve in a quarter, then that allows you to really look at that opportunity and have that discussion to say, you think this is a priority. Why is it? What type of progress can we make? And then how do I calibrate it just to what we're trying to do as a larger organization? And generally, just that conversation alone is more productive than what I've seen in some organizations where it's, you know, the the CEO points in, in a certain direction and then everyone just runs in that direction without thinking about other priorities that could be missed on the front lines. Right. So it sounds like it's a very bottom-up process as opposed to top-down, but there must be guidance coming from the top about what is most important. So how does that work? How does the top-down communication, if any, happen? Well, that, that's that's the delicate dance across any team. So as as a manager, you'll see what the organizational priorities are. And you'll certainly want to say, how does our team fit into those organizational priorities? That challenge has to go to the people on your team to say, we've been tasked with doing X. How can we meet that? But usually what you see on the fringes are things, and and this is where the OKR process at least has been helpful for me, is that you allow people to surface things to say, we want to go in this direction. Now, if I only look at that from managerial side, I can say, well, we want to launch this product. But because the the individual people on the team have some autonomy to recommend their own goals, they could say, look, we're headed in this direction with this product, but we really have these two or three other areas that are going to support that launch that we need to develop. And those may be things that I'm not directly aware about that I haven't seen, but they're saying this will be necessary to support our launch. And then they have the room to explore it within the context of the system. And often I would think there's somebody else who needs to take care of those things. So you need to reach out to marketing to get the product description just developed, or you need to reach out to legal to make sure you're doing something or whatever. How did those kind of requests across the functions get handled? You mentioned the the, build, the no friction idea, but there's also some just stuff that got, that's got to get done. Oh, absolutely. And, and I kind of say, I'm like the, the easiest way to explain it to any team. And, and I, I recommend for people doing this in an organization is I say, look, it's easier for me to go to someone and say, look, 10 or 15% of your role may be boring, process-oriented, bureaucratic stuff that has nothing to do with your career. And that's just the cost of doing business. That's that's part mm-hmm. of it. And I'm sorry uh, as a leader, but at least I'm acknowledging that this is happening as opposed to just kind of writing it off. Like, yeah, just go do it. But the other part of it as well is that in order to set a successful goal, whether you call it an OKR or something else, if I'm looking there at what I can accomplish, you learn fairly quickly that it's rare that you're going to be able to do anything on your own. You require that team. Nobody has a, the ability to launch a product even on their own or to get in it. We may do a great analysis, but we know that the relationship with the company is going to touch three or four different teams. And so generally, the longer people go in, and this is where it's tying back to that collaborative organization, is you realize the other people you need on your team, the other people you need to drive these objectives. And what you end up seeing at the employee level is that people start reaching out to say, look, I think this would be a great OKR of mine. I'd like to get it done. But I know I'm going to need marketing and I know I'm going to need PR support. And I know we're all operating on the same system, that they have their OKRs. 
And so oftentimes what you do is you reach out to these teams and you'll say, hey, so what, what are you thinking about for, for Q1 of 2022? What are those goals that you're setting? And you can start to see areas to say, hey, here's areas where we could be aligned and we could collaborate together. You set this goal. We've set this goal. It seems to work with your organizations. Let's get it done. Or in cases, you may find that that alignment is completely off. And then you can just say, well, who, who would you recommend? Who should I collaborate in the organization that can help make that happen? You know, it just dawned on me that one of the biggest assets that you have is that you're very, very profitable. <laughs> and so what I see with my clients is, you know, that people are getting multiple asks, especially people like legal and marketing that are trying to, you know, juggle many balls and satisfy many different groups. And they just get overwhelmed and they just don't have any more capacity. And they just say, sorry, you're just not a priority this quarter. But I would think that at Google, because you're very profitable and you're growing very fast, there is more flexibility to just say, we've got to expand the legal team. I mean, we got to add some people. And so the capacity is more aligned with the aspiration. Is that, do you think that's right? Uh, certainly they're, they're planning ahead and they're saying, you know, obviously what do we need to do to, to hit a certain growth rate? What, who do we need to hire? How big do the teams need to be? I think the two areas that were baked into Google's culture, which have served the company phenomenally well over the years, uh, one is just that perpetual focus on scaling the business. So looking at it, not necessarily to say, well, we are understaffed in this area. Let's hire one more person, but to take a step back and say, why did, why did we end up becoming understaffed? Is this happening across other teams? Do we need to just hire one person or what's really the problem we're trying to solve over the next two or three years? Well, we need to scale this entire function. All right, good. Is staffing always the proper requirement? You see some companies are like, wow, we're, we're way behind here. Just add more people. Or Google is a company will say, hey, do we need to add people or can we build processes to make things more efficient for the people that we have? Uh, and those types of questions that they ask always had that long-term focus to say, adding people is the easy answer to any problem for a company because it's instant scale, right? We're just throwing more people onto the team where they've always been, uh, I've seen awareness to say, uh, how do we build the right structure, the right processes to encourage the people that we have to be able to do as much as they possibly can? Uh, the second part of it, which uh, has served as, as equally well as the first, is I've always seen discussions where adding headcount is actually a hard discussion. Now, which means there's an internal, just internal sentiment to say, if you just want to add more people to the problem, is that the right solution? Or when we look at our current teams, are the, is there things we could do differently or things we could send over to different teams? And again, going back to that software and that scaling question, and again, conditioning people, if you know a conversation is going to be hard, right? If you know, hey, I've, I've asked them for people and I know what they're going to say, then you start looking at your own internal capabilities first and you know that simply adding people on almost because it becomes an option of last resort. Mm -hmm. And I think over time, when you look at that over decades, that serves a company well because you look at individual functions and they've really gone through that exercise to say, how much can we do with the people that we have? What can we do to enable them to make decision making, to make processes easier than simply saying every time work goes up, our team just gets bigger? Yeah, I would imagine that um, you're probably very, very good at using things like robotic process automation. So good that you probably don't even think it is a thing. You just do it automatically. But also that you are probably very good about just saying, what am I doing here that's really not adding that much value? How could I just exactly. you know, ship it instead of having it be perfect? You know, they, they have actually a, a process like this. It's an annual exercise in the company where everybody in the company is free to submit and vote 
on what they consider to be the largest bureaucratic organizational blockers in the company. And then that process is traditionally led up at the sea levels to say, this is what you surface as a company. This is what's slowing you down from your work. And we're going to go fix it. And we're going to report back to you the progress that we're making. And we're going to repeat this exercise as many times as necessary. And you're surprised when you get other departments and other teams together, be like, wow, this is a really hard process for me. And you see other people in other organizations saying, hey, we're struggling with this too. And then you get the, you get the C-level saying, hey, we didn't know this was a problem because this isn't something we see in our work. Mm-hmm. Like one, of, one of the classic ones, and it kind of sounds trivial, was there was a time at Google, it was impossible to book a conference room. <laughs> you just couldn't do it. I came in one time during, right after, uh, during the Christmas holiday, it was like December 27th, the entire office was empty and still every conference room was booked. And it was just because the processes incentivize people, you want to book that space in advance because you may not have it. And it created a cycle where it became a, a precious commodity. <laughs> that everyone was so worried about. They're like, if you don't, if you don't book a conference room out months in advance, then you may not have it. So let's do that. And then the entire company did it. And it wasn't until everybody raised their hand and said, this is something that needs to be fixed. You probably didn't know about it, but it's costing us hours, thousands of hours every time everybody has to do it. And you simply see how those little processes come in to really help the company become more effective. How did they fix it? Uh, They had, uh, they went with software which was they just upgraded Google Calendar to then it, they changed a variety of ways that how we book. But one of the the more prevalent ones is that a system that instead of having to go conference room by conference room manually, which was the process at the time, uh-huh. to now saying you click a button and it looks at all the attendees, what offices they're in, how many total attendees, and just automatically books a space. That makes tons meeting, of sense. If the meeting's canceled, yeah, if the meeting's canceled, it undoes all that work. Now that sounds intuitive. So why wouldn't it work that way? At the time, you literally had to go through every building. You had to be like, well, this is the building I'm at. These are the buildings next to me that I can walk to in three or four minutes. Let's go conference room by conference room to see what's available. And what you ended up doing was if you found one, like I, hey, I'm, it's just me in the meeting, but here's the closest building I can find. Yeah, it's a 30 person conference room, but I need space. And so then you're sitting in this big cavernous room while other people are running around being like, where do we hold our team meeting? But that was a process at the time. Have you sold or given that solution to customers that use Google Calendar? That's, that's exactly the, the process is that if something's useful for us, it certainly is going to be useful for others. So you actually see these products and these tools, Google Workspace is kind of the corporate version of, of Calendar. It's the same tool we use internally. And so a lot of the developments we have there I imagine they go through testing. We're like, I'm sure other people need this stuff. And so that's how it filters out. So that what we do internally uh, can help guide and advise how we can make other companies more effective. Fantastic. What leadership skills do you think are most valued at Google? And what do you think, what leadership skills do you think might be missing? I'd say the most, the most powerful one still today is developing the people on your team. Uh, some of the most effective leaders that I've worked under take the position to say, we're hiring some of the smartest people in industry. Our goal really should be to develop them to their fullest potential. Like the goal isn't for a manager to just, you know, simply point at similar to OKRs and say, everybody go in this direction. As much as it is to kind of guide them to say, where are their strengths that we can play to so that we can get, you know, them involved, them interested and invested in their work uh, and also align them to what they're really good at. Uh, now, areas that I think the company has to work on, I, I'd say this is just something about COVID that companies everywhere are still figuring out, which is how do you build effective teams when everybody's working from home? Mm-hmm. 
And hopefully this will be short-lived, although I've made those predictions before. I think I said, you know, somewhere last summer, I was like, vaccines are out. So COVID, things will be back to normal by September. And I know Google said they were coming back to office in September, and then it was October, then it was January, and now it's, you know, maybe March or April. But I, I think overall, when you have a culture that's strongly reinforced by that physical location, getting people together, having those almost water cooler, micro kitchen conversations. And now you have something that's very strict where you have to book time on calendar and you have to, you know, stare into a little camera and you can't connect. Uh, how do you ensure that you're still maintaining some of that, you know, that, that, that spontaneous work and that collaboration when those opportunities themselves don't exist? And, and broadly speaking, I'm not sure any leader in any organization has a guidebook for doing it. So I think it's a lot of curiosity to say, how do these cultures adapt to what may effectively become a permanent change to to our working culture? I think it's certainly going to become at least partially permanent. I mean, many, many people will be remote fully and everybody will be more remote than they used to be. And that's here to stay. Yeah, possibly, yes. Which just means that Google can develop even more great products for people to collaborate. So you're in, you're good in a good space. <laughs> I, I saw one at the, the, our Google I/O conference, which is like they were doing like I, I'm gonna I'm gonna completely botch how they choose to represent it, but it was like these 3D holograms of people and how just seeing people in front of you with depth with texture versus on a flat screen changes the level of engagement with them. And I think this space has a lot of room for innovation. I mean, if you've looked at just in the past five years, what you see in products, is kind of like the same thing. We're going to send the image over the best we can. And it looks like collectively companies are figuring out that this part will be part of work culture and they're dedicating resources to innovating in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that the, an important leadership skills is to align people to what they're good at. And, you know, you employ zillions of engineers. My career started in engineering and we're taught as engineers to be highly logical and we're not really taught that many EQ skills. We don't really have that much uh, emotional intelligence typically. How does Google transform these technologist type of folks to being great managers? I I think it just has to deal with the collaboration for the engineers that I've worked with and they, they are highly logical. I mean, when we go back to some of those those diagrams about how people behave, that may not be how the larger world works, but that is very much how they will make decisions. And that's and that's fine. But what I also find with these particular engineers is that in those cases, simply having more data and exposure to different circumstances allows them to adjust their perspective. And so when we look at a lot of the cross-functional activities that happens in Google, there was a time where we were working with product teams where just every couple of months we'd come together and we would just candidly share what we were seeing from the field. And the engineers that we were working with were very intent. And it was funny to see at times where, you know, there was a, a case in particular that stands out where one of the sales teams I was with just kind of mentioned, they're like, yeah, so our, our, our customers, you know, they, they just, you know, they spent all their money for December. They spent it by the second week of December. And then that was it. And one of the engineers just raised their hand. They're like, what, what do you mean? A customer spent money and they stopped. And so they, they provide a little more detail. Like, oh, well, a customer had a budget. This was as much as they could spend on this product for the quarter. And so they turned it off. And the customer had to do that even if they were still making money, mm, which just blew the wow. engineer's mind. They're like, wait a minute. So they're making money off our product. We're helping their business grow and they're turning it off. That seems like the most irrational thing. Why would it happen? Well, as it turns out, even though it's irrational in that decision, in the larger scope of the organization, 
the CFO is not going to give anybody a blank check. Right. You can't manage a business that way. So they do the best they can to assign budgets. And oddly enough, that was never considered in the product design. The product design was, we'll help you make as much money as you can. And you flip it on when it makes you money and you turn it off when it stops making you money. Not that you would turn it off based on an arbitrary constraint within your organization. And this actually led to a really great conversation because for the previous couple months, they were building without understanding of the condition that was guiding the customer behavior. So were they able to fix that? The, absolutely. In the product? How did they do that? Not only did they reinvent the flow, but they changed some of the assumptions that they had. So they started actually asking customers, is this a constraint of your business? And if it's a constraint to your business, then we can deliver the product in a, in a different way. So for instance, if we're assuming that our timeline to deliver is indefinite, uh, then we will do as much as we can with each and every day to maximize growth. But on the other hand, if you're looking at a longer horizon and saying you have finite resources, our delivery of this value may be a little bit different. So we may say, look, we can make more on day five than we can on day one. And if you have a finite budget, we're going to spend more time and resources on day five. But what it really did at the core of the product was it said, this is what customers are doing. This is what customers need. This is what we're going to build towards. But engineers don't often interact in the front lines of the organization in that capacity. So there would be no other way for them to get that insight until they just had those conversations with salespeople, people that I can tell you have three or four other layers. So otherwise they would not interact with, they would not get that insight, but just because the culture allows them to do it, they can then add it to say this as well as I'm sure countless other insights. This is just how the market's behaving. And so we need to build to those conditions. So what is the mechanism for customer insights and observations to get from the sales force and the customer back to the engineer? Does it happen in a regular and systematic way? Or was it happenstance that they happen to have that conversation that led to a fantastic insight? A combination of both. As a large company, there are the formalized processes. So we will routinely go to customers and we have what we call customer geist surveys, where we ask them how they're feeling, what they're doing, large analyses where those results are aggregated at the very highest level and surfaced out to say how we're going to take action to improve. Those processes, as I, as I referred to, are necessary for any large company to function. But on the other hand, because Google has a collaborative environment, you say, look, our large survey is going to be run once a year, right? That's, that's 12 months in between insight and what's happening on the field. When you do a large survey, you have a lot of data and you try to standard or standardize around a set of questions that you can measure progress year over year. Those are much different objectives than what you may get on an individual conversation with a collection of advertisers over lunch. Mm -hmm. And so the collaborative element of the company allows it to say, hey, here's a sales team that's running into this problem where they won't necessarily hesitate to then reach out directly to the engineers building the product and say, hey, I just, I just happened to learn this. I thought you'd be interested in this. And, and, and the collaboration works both ways. Sometimes we have engineers that will just reach out to sales teams to say, hey, I'm, I'm writing code for this feature. What, what do you think they're going to do? And can I get in touch with them? Can I get some data from the field themselves? And so you look at that nice balance of, you need to build processes in order for any company to scale to any reasonable size. You need to have those processes, those tools, and those systems in place. But you also need to make sure that people feel empowered to go around them for the purposes of innovation to say, we know that the processes can't support 100%. So we're going to give you that kind of that rein to collaborate where it makes sense in hopes that you feed those insights back up so we can figure out how to scale it later on. And there must be... Um 
you know, interim releases of minimum viable product all the way up to almost done product that enable the engineers to just watch what customers are actually doing, looking at the data, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And in fact, most of the products that before they go out, there's an internal process where Googlers will use them. Mm-hmm. And and I've heard from some of the engineers that Googlers will be the most critical voices on a product, especially I've seen some of the engineers, like engineers will critique things that normal mass market users won't do. But they try to capture as much feedback as possible before it goes out into the market. And, and even then, we do see some products that are sent out, which is simply to say, we won't know until we get it in the hands of customers. And we're just honest with customers to say, we're still exploring this, we're still testing this. Can we get your feedback on it? Because we really want to see, did the logical, rational assumptions we make early on really play out in terms of the development of the product? Well, and I think the other thing you do well is you let customers opt into the experiments. So I love to go into the Gmail labs, for instance, and just try something that I know it's not going to be fully baked. I know there may be snags with it, but I'm getting to use something I need. So it's all good. That's, that's the, the culture of experimentation is, is just one that's been necessary. It's for Google, it's for tech companies, it's for companies anywhere. It's to say, how do you get these new ideas out? What is the balance between an idea and a full execution um, uh, in terms of risk and reward? You know, I can certainly take any product, any feature, anything in Gmail labs and build it out 100% into a full product. But is that necessarily the best course or do you want to find a way to say, let's get this in front, let's collect this data. And in in the lab's case, let's do it without interrupting someone's workflow. So let's not change the entire product, but let's give them the idea to say, hey, if this is a pain point for you and you want to see what we're working on, here's a way where you can self-select and opt into that group. So that way we can capture some of that data to say, is this really solving the problem like we thought it would? Mm -hmm. You mentioned the OKRs. Is there a what is the process for accountability? Do you have performance reviews every quarter? Do you have continuous feedback? What? Wh- how does accountability work at Google? So OKRs are generally re- are reviewed on a quarterly basis. And the key to it, the review is transparency. So if you start all the way at the top of the organization, all the way down to the VPs and the directors, they are generally fairly transparent. Um, they don't share specific revenue numbers. So it's not to say we wanted to grow by you know, $50 million and we hit $52 million, but it's to say, we set revenue targets. This is how we did on our OKRs. And this is a strange thing for companies is to actually have the leadership stand up and say, these are the goals we set. And now we have to take accountability for how we actually did. And then when you see that almost cascade down into the individual teams, then you start to see, well, okay, these are the goals, even that my, my leader set. And they're admitting and raising their hand to say, look, I took risk on these. Remember we say that we we don't want to hit all of our goals. Here's the ones that we fell short on. But what's interesting about the process is they also talk about what they learned. So it's one thing to fail, but it's another thing to fail without having an understanding or explanation as to why. What did you learn about that failure that can help either reduce its risk going forward or will change the way that you see the world? And then when you get down to the individual level, we go through performance reviews every six months where those OKRs are are very much listed to say, these are the OKRs, the goals that you set. How did those projects turn out and why? And then that goes to a committee process, which determines, you know, promotions, overall scoring, um, but it's all still tied to those same accomplishments. So there's partly a yes, no, did you achieve it? But since you only set a 70% goal anyway... There's a lot of forgiveness and a lot of knowledge that people are going to be experimenting, that they're going to fail a certain amount. And as long as you learn from it, that's all good. Yes. I wish all companies could be like that. 
<laughs> it's every every company has its own has its own system. Uh, yeah, you know, you see it. It's like there's I work with some consultancies where they they have their system in place that they've used for decades, and I think that's fine as long as they think about the larger implications for the system. So if you encourage this type of behavior, so there are some organizations where you have to get, you know, five out of five for everything you're doing. Okay, that's fine if you want, if that's your system, but are you considering how this may negatively impact the risk profile of the people at your organization? Now, innovative companies like tech benefit from that because they need to take risks. The future is uncertain. If you're working in a large organization, say legal or something regulatory, do you really want people failing on 30% of their projects? That may be a different question. Well, you work with a lot of um, external parties. You work closely with a lot of customers. And those customers are in di- a different world than you are. They're often being held to the five out of five standard. They're all often being held to very strict requirements in terms of how much money they can spend and how much revenue they need to bring in. Are you able to have some of the Google mentality rub off on them, or do you adapt to their culture? And what have you seen in terms of companies being able to progress and become more innovative, even while while maybe operating in an industry that's kind of tough? I'd say my preference is always to fit an idea, a system, a transformation, a metric to a company's culture, not trying to fit a company's culture the other way around. Which means that we don't want to, you don't want to turn a company into Google. Uh, That company has been successful and has built itself over its culture, its processes, its tools. What you try to listen for are where are the areas where they're trying to improve and where are their insights and experiences that we have? What's data that we've captured that can help ensure the success of that transformation that they're trying to make? And so in that case, there's nothing so dogmatic to say, well, if you're going to make this transformation, you need to use OKRs or you need to use net promoter score or lifetime value or any particular metric. It's really to say, if your company is going in this direction, these are the different techniques and levers you can pull on. These have been our experiences in that area. This is how we think it adjusts to your culture. And then almost bringing that in to say, how do you make it your own? So even when we see companies who are, and they come in, they ask about our culture and they ask about how we test and how we, how we hire I've never seen any company take it one-to-one and be successful to say, we're now going to ask interview questions like Google. You don't do that. Mm -hmm. I've been more intrigued by how companies say, all right, this is a Google process. This is a process we have. How can we use things like Google to make our processes better? And how can we iterate on it? So they're almost taking it for inspiration to challenge their own assumptions, just as our engineers. And I think that's a better way forward. I'm always worried when people come in and say, hey, we want to, I had one company I remember one time, I was like, well, we want to ask interview questions just like you do. I'm like, you got to be careful about that because mm-hmm. the, the thing to always keep in mind with these is that the tactics that we readily observe from the outside, the interview questions, the free food using OKRs are uniquely different than the systems that make them successful. And the systems are always a lot harder to understand. And so companies need to be mindful of that to say, it's not simply, this is something Google does, so we're going to do it. It's to say, it's either you have to study the system that's in place that makes all of it work, or you have to say, this is an individual tactic or insight that can inform your larger system and possibly make it stronger. And that latter approach is generally a lot less risky and a lot easier to do. Do you happen to have a consulting group that goes into into clients and says, if you want to adopt parts of our system, parts of our culture, we'll help you? Yeah, I'm... For what I do on data and measurement, I work alongside people that do exactly that. 
there are a lot of companies that come to us to say, Google, you're successful with data. What can we learn from you? Those are always the best questions. How can we collaborate? What kind of insights and challenges can you bring to the table? And we have people that do exactly that. Uh, and there are a lot of questions. There are a lot of curiosities. And I think as a company, it's figuring out how do we do that effectively and how do we scale it? One book that I still love, which is a little bit idealistic, but it's still a great read. It's just a book called How Google Works. I've read that. And it's, it, it's a fantastic book. And it, it just gives you kind of the layout to say, look, this is a language. These are the processes. These are the objectives we built. And because that book is several years old at this point, there's also kind of that history of its evolution where some companies come in and say, look, Eric Schmidt, when he was your CEO and chairman, said this is how he wants to do hiring. Is this still what Google does today? And the answer is, well, no, we've changed. And there's that discussion saying, well, what did you learn along the way? Or why did you change it? Or what did you find was effective or not? And so there's kind of that ongoing story that, again, they witness and they say, well, these are learnings that we could possibly apply to our our culture, or maybe we're a couple years ahead or behind. Um, And it just adds to a really good conversation. So the answer is yes. We love to have those conversations. It's just figuring out how we make them meaningful, given that we can't fully understand any company's culture as well as they can. Yeah, I think it's so valuable to look at another company that's totally different than yourself and say, here's five things that they do differently than us. What can we learn from what they're doing that we could apply here? And we're going to apply it in a totally different way. But just look outside yourself, because if you're always just looking internally and saying, this is broken, how are we going to fix it? It's a little bit different, uh, exactly. different out- outcome. Thank you so much for being with us today, Neil. It's been a lot of fun talking with you, and I hope that we'll do this again in the future. And I hope that everyone will go to convertedbook.com, buy this book, and follow Neil on LinkedIn, because I've looked through a lot of his posts, and he's always got something weird, unexpected, and useful on his feed. Amanda, thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Fearless Growth. You can find out more about the show at satili.com slash podcast, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like what you've heard, please take a moment to write a review and give us a star rating. Reviews matter so much in helping others find us. Thanks for your support. 